Hebrews chapter 7, starting verse 23. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made perfect for him. Now, Pastor to Rowan, who's going to continue our series in Hebrews. Thanks, Jack. Great to see you here at the EU public meeting. Just let me add my weight to the advertisement to encourage you to do the EU Equip courses this semester, which are starting next week and re registrations close uh, this week. In particular, if you're in first year, we'd love you to do Jesus Centered Conversations, JCC course. It's really an excellent course. You'll get to meet up with lots of other first years in your faculty and talk about what it means to be a Christian and talk about what it means to then share the good news of Jesus Christ. A really excellent course. I encourage you to do that if you've not done that. And if you're in second year or up, we'd love you to do Changing the World Through One-to-One -one Ministry. Meeting up one-to-one -one with somebody to read the Bible, whether they're a Christian or a non-Christian, is actually something that I think everybody who is a Christian should be able to do for the rest of your life. I often say to people at the point of graduation, I say to them, it'd be lovely if whenever I run into you in the future in 5, 10, 50 years' time, well, 50 years' time, maybe not me, but you know what I mean. <laughs> If I run into you at some point in the future, it'd be great if I could just say to you, and so who are you meeting up with at the moment? Because I reckon as Christians, you can always be meeting up with somebody to read the Bible one-to-one, -one, whether it's a younger Christian in church or whether it's a non-Christian in the workplace. It's just something you can do easily for the rest of your life in terms of helping people grow into the knowledge and love of Christ. And therefore, spending five hours, because this course is only five one-hour blocks, spending five hours getting equipped to do that for a lifetime like the next 50 years, that sounds like a pretty good payoff to me. So I'd encourage you to do Changing the World through one-to-one -one ministry. We're making a big push. That's why we're offering it twice a day, every day, so that everybody can do it. So if you haven't thought about doing it, not too late to jump on board before we even begin. That would be great. If you want to do it with me, I'm doing Tuesdays at 3 p.m. I don't know if that's an advantage or just say, well, that's what I'm not going to do because, you know, anyway, that's what I'm doing. So... Today we're going to be looking at this little section of the book of Hebrews that Jack just read out a portion of it for us, and I've got five headings. So if you take notes, it'd be great to jot it down or maybe type it into your, you know, whatever. But um, five headings, just to help us sort of flow through. First heading is this. A weighty existential question. A weighty existential question. And I mean that. And it posed to you a question that I actually think has genuine existential weight for each of us. What's the question? The question is, how can I find cleansing for my soul? How can I find cleansing for my soul? I brought along a family heirloom today. Your family have heirlooms. You know, things get passed down generation to generation. This is one of the ones that have been passed down from my grandparents through my dad's side. 
Uh, it's William Shakespeare, The Complete Works. All of Shakespeare's works in one volume. It's an old book. You can see it's got the nice sort of front piece that books used to have once upon a time when, you know. Anyway, uh, this book sat on the bookshelf of my grandparents. My dad grew up in Tumut, which is a little country town in rural New South Wales, sort of between Canberra and uh, Wagga Wagga, really. And he grew up there, and so my grandparents were a country couple. They lived in town, not on the land. My grandfather ran the menswear shop. He ran the little local menswear shop in the town. And my grandmother entertained the ladies of the town, as one did if one was a cultured woman of the, la of the country. And so because, you know, she would serve them afternoon tea each afternoon. They would come around to the house, she would serve them afternoon tea. And because she was cultured, she could play the piano. And sitting on her bookshelf was the complete works of William Shakespeare. Anyone read any Shakespeare ever in your life? Forced to do it at school? Hand up again. Yeah, okay, right. What was your favourite Shakespeare play? Call it out. Macbeth. 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 Okay. Other votes? Other votes? Favourite Shakespeare play? Hamlet. Look, is that really your favourite? That's just one you had to study, and that's the only one you know. Like, you know what else could it be? King Lear. A Winter's Tale. Someone's given us a comedy. That's nice. That is a comedy, right? Yeah, you get that right, yeah. I'm going to read you a little bit out of Macbeth, it turns out. Hand up if you've ever read or watched Macbeth. Right, quite a lot. You may well remember part of the famous scene in Macbeth, Act 5, Scene 1. Don't worry, I'll remind you what happens. It's the scene with Lady Macbeth. Lady Macbeth is very troubled. She's having trouble sleeping, in fact. What's happening is each night she's sleepwalking because of the trouble, her troubled conscience, because of her soul that needs cleansing. She's walking around and as she walks around, she mumbles, talks, she writes and she rubs her hands incessantly. Now, in this particular scene, the uh, gentlewoman, one of the people who attend to uh, Lady Macbeth, is, is, been, is observing this behaviour and is troubled by it. And she's called a doctor, a, phys a physic, a physician, right? Someone who's coming to look and see what's going on, to try and determine what's actually going on with Lady Macbeth. What is troubling her so? Why, why is she doing this? Anyone remember why Lady Macbeth is so troubled? How come she's so troubled? Someone call it out with gusto so that we can all hear. She sins. She sins. <laughs> <laughs> what did Lady Macbeth do? What did she be involved in? Anyone remember? She had been involved in the plot to assassinate the king. Yeah? Let me remind you of something that some of the stuff has said here. It's hard for me to play three people at once, but I'll do my best, right? Okay. In walks Lady Macbeth, there's the doctor, there's the gentlewoman there, and the doctor says, what is it she does now? Look how she rubs her hands. The gentlewoman says, it is an accustomed action with her to seem thus washing her hands. I've known her continue in this a quarter of an hour. Lady Macbeth says, yet here's a spot. She's looking at her hands, right? 
The doctor says, Hark, she speaks. I will set down what comes from her to satisfy my remembrance the more strongly. Lady Macbeth keeps talking. Out, damned spot. Out, I say. She goes on. Yet who would have thought the old man to have had so much blood in him? A bit later on, she says, Here's the smell of the blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. Oh, oh, oh. She's deeply troubled in conscience. Something has stained her soul, this action that she's been involved in. And it's the genius of Shakespeare, frankly, that he captures the reality that guilt plays in our life. If you feel guilty about something, it really does play in your heart, it gets into your mind, and it stains your conscience. We all have that experience, all of us. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's that relationship that you broke, the trust that you betrayed, that sits with you. Maybe it's the words that you spoke in a moment of rashness that you can't take back. Maybe it's the thing that you did that you really regret. Or maybe it's the thing that you know you should have done, but you were too gutless or too selfish to do it. Maybe it's the fact that you slept with somebody you know you shouldn't have. Maybe it's the abortion you had that you wish you hadn't. Maybe it's the porn addiction that can't or won't go away. Maybe it's the thing that you did out of anger or jealousy or hatred. We all have a stained conscience. Me too. I can tell you about the harsh things I've said to people that's affected relationships for years. I can tell you about the lies that I've told people to protect myself. I could share with you the pride that much as I don't like to admit it, often drives me. I could share with you the impure thoughts I could share with you the promises that I've made. I think the many promises I've made that I've not kept. We all have a stained conscience. So this, I think, is a, this is a weighty existential question. How can I cleanse my conscience? How can I find real cleansing for my soul? Um, King David in the Old Testament understood this and in Psalm 51 he expresses his stained conscience with these particular words. He says, this is after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and had Bathsheba's husband killed to try to cover up what he'd done. He then says, astoundingly, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you, O God. 
you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you approve right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the innermost place. Now, I take it David understands that he hasn't sinned only against God. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. But he understands that in, in comparison, in comparison it, as, it is as though he has sinned chiefly, mainly, primarily. The largest sin is actually that he went against what he knew to be God's word and God's ways. You might remember I talked last week how the reality is that the one true living God revealed in the Christian Bible, the one true living God is more holy than we can imagine. And we are more sinful than we like to remember. That's the reality. And that's why we have this weighty existential question. How can I find cleansing for my soul? Now, the world has a fair bit of advice for you. In fact, one part of advice that the world has is if you're feeling oppressed by what you've done in the past, if you're feeling guilty, then the answer is just stop feeling guilty. Stop putting that burden upon yourself. Just ignore it. Though I think what happens when we ignore it is actually, rather than getting a cleansed conscience, what we end up with is, is a calloused conscience. We harden ourselves, actually, to the reality of when we do things we know we shouldn't do. We harden ourselves to that guilt. And I'm not sure that actually is a healthy way to live. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's not. And in fact, we sort of know that just ignoring guilt is not the right thing to do. And the reason we know it is because when we see other people's guilt ignored, that sets off an alarm bell for us. The weekend I was just flicking through the, the paper and I noticed a couple of things. And, uh, so I ripped them out just because I thought they were relevant to what we were talking about today. Uh, this first article um, is about, you might have seen it or heard it uh, on the news, just an Australian guy and his girlfriend were terribly murdered in Canada a couple of weeks ago. And then the authorities suspected two teenagers, an 18-year-old and 19-year-old, of, of that particular murder. Another guy was murdered as well. And there was a massive manhunt across Canada looking for these two. And then it was revealed last week that they did actually, that they found them, but they'd found their bodies on an isolated river out in the wilderness. They'd found the bodies of these two they were looking for. And then it was only just on the news yesterday that they have now the autopsy has come back and it turns out that these two committed suicide. Two people who were wanted for this murder. I mean, it's a horrible story all, all the way around. What struck me about this particular news article was, you know how reporters are not meant to, not to put their own values into the piece, right? But how can you, like, it's almost an impossible task, right? And what's revealed here is the reporter actually says, not knowing yet how they had died, not knowing that they committed suicide, but these two, they found their bodies, they, the reporter says, their deaths mean that they will never face justice for their alleged crimes. What is justice for the crimes they committed there? What, what would true justice look like? Because underneath that is clearly, the, you can't just ignore what they've done. And in fact, the fact that they're now dead is sort of like unfair. They're not facing real justice. That's not enough. Death is not enough, actually. 
Now, as Christians who understand that the promise is that the Lord Jesus Christ is one day to return as judge of all, we know that there is actually a final day of reckoning coming, a final day of judgment coming, and we know that it's not true, actually, that they will never face justice for their alleged crimes. We know there is a justice, a justice day coming. But to just ignore their guilt, that's clearly not enough for any of us. I'll give you another example. There was another article in the paper about a guy who's in prison here in New South Wales. He's been in prison since the year 2000 for a, for a horrible series of sexual, sexual assaults. Horrible series of sexual assaults. He's been in prison now for 19 years. His uh, parole has come up. And the reason there's a news article about it is because his parole was rejected, his application for parole, even though he's now passed the non-parole period. And the reason why, well, one of the reasons why is a review of his sort of condition reported that it appears that he still blames the victims for his offending, has no victim empathy, and refuses to take responsibility for his actions. Yet he, the, the, person, the perpetrator himself, is saying, but I should be released because I've now, I've been a good prisoner and I've served my time and now I should be released. They're saying, yeah, we're not sure that he's a good person to release. The person who led the prosecution that put him behind bars says, I think it's time he got out. He's done his time. But does it leave you a bit troubled? That sort of working out of justice? You can't just ignore someone's guilt. You can't just ignore it. And we can't ignore our own. That's not real cleansing. Hence the weighty existential question, how can we get real cleansing for the reality of our own guilt? Well, the answer is, in the Christian answer in the New Testament, is that real cleansing for your conscience can be found because that is what the one true living God offers you in Jesus. Real cleansing for your conscience. And the writer to the Hebrews is at pains to make this particular point in the section that we're looking at today. So that's what we will be exploring. Now, just in case you're just joining us for the first time at the EU public meeting or because you might have forgotten a little bit of what the book of Hebrews is about, I'll give you my sort of two-sentence summary. Book of Hebrews, written by a Christian to a bunch of Christians who've been Christians for a long time or a reasonable length of time, but they're facing significant persecution for their faith. So they're tempted to go back to... Judaism, which is where they originally came from. They were Jews who came to be Christians by trusting in Jesus. They're now thinking life would be much easier if I just went back to Judaism. The writer is writing to them to say, don't let go of Jesus and go back to Judaism because all that Old Testament Judaism stuff was the shadows of the reality that's found in Jesus. So don't let go of the reality and go back to the shadows because the shadows are ineffective Without Jesus, you need to hold on to Jesus. That's the right of big point. And in this particular section in the middle of the book of Hebrews, he's pointing out that Jesus is three, well, three things. Jesus is the real priest, not like the Old Testament priest who is shadows of the real priest. He is the real priest, offering the real sacrifice, not like the sacrifices offered at the temple. And he does it in the real place. That is, he does it in the very presence of God, not just in the earthly temple. Real person, real act in the real place. Last week we looked at Jesus being the real person, the real priest who can intercede for you forever. This week, the real act, his real sacrifice. Next week, in the real place. 
So if you've got your Bible there, let's have a look at what the writer says to his readers about Jesus being the one who offers the real sacrifice to cleanse our conscience. So, second heading, if you're taking notes, second heading, ineffective shadows versus effective reality. Ineffective shadows versus effective reality. Have a look there, if you've got your Bible there, beginning of chapter 9, or look on with the person next to you. I'll point out a few things he says. The first five verses of, of chapter 9, he talks about the old temple system. Now, at the time he's writing, the temple was still there in Jerusalem. The old Jewish practices were still going on there in Jerusalem. There were sacrifices, there were priests, there was the temple. He describes the setup. And he describes it in particular, there's two parts to it. There's the outer section or the holy place, and there's the inner section, the most holy place. Jump in then at verse 6. He says, when everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people that they committed in ignorance. So notice here what he's saying, how, this, how the Old Testament tabernacle or te temple, how it operated. The priests would go into the outer room doing their priestly stuff all the time, regularly. However, the innermost place, the most holy place, where symbolically the one true living God was sort of dwelling amidst his people in that most holy place, only the high priest could go in. And only once a year. Why is that ineffective? I'll tell you why. Because the one true living God, from beginning to end of the Christian Bible, the one true living God wants to have real fellowship with you he wants to have real relationship with you he wants to be your god he wants you to be part of his people he wants to take up residence in your life he wants you to live in his presence now in the old testament system where was god symbolically dwelling in the most holy place so if you were a part of god's people in those days would you get to walk into his presence no you're not the high priest only the high priest gets to go in and be in the presence of God. Does he get to go in there whenever he likes? No. He gets to go in once a year. Does that system sound like the fulfilment of all of God's good plans to have close fellowship with his people? One person gets to go in once a year. That clearly is not an effective system, right? It's not pulled off what the one true living God wants to have happen. The system is ineffective. How come it's ineffective? Well, let's have a look um, in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 9. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. That is, why was the high priest only personal allowed in and only once a year? It's because all of the sacrifices he was offering were unable to cleanse his conscience. All those sacrifices were unable to cleanse the conscience of the people. Because God is more holy than you can imagine and we are more sinful than we like to remember. That's why we can't just wander into his presence. And all of those sacrifices was offered. They couldn't clear the conscience. That's why they couldn't just go in. 
shows the ineffectiveness of that Old Testament system. If you jump then ahead, just jump ahead to chapter 10 here, he, the writer comes back to this theme. Chapter 10, the first couple of verses, he says, The law, as the Old Testament law which set up this system, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. There's the problem. The blood of goats and bulls can't take away your sins. If they had been effective, if actually there was real cleansing for your conscience, then they could have just offered the sacrifice and be done with it. Then you're, then you're cleansed. But it wasn't. They were ineffective. So it had to be repeated over and over and over again. That's the ineffective shadows, but they're shadows of the reality to come, the reality to come found in Jesus. Back to chapter 9 then, verses 12 and 14. Chapter 9, verses 12 and 14, talking about Jesus. He says, Jesus did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we might serve the living and true God. Jesus' sacrifice wasn't done repeatedly, wasn't done every year. Jesus makes a once-for-all sacrifice by his own blood. That is, talking about his death when he dies on the cross. Jesus makes a one-time sacrifice, which then cleanses our conscience so that you can serve the one true living God. So then the question comes, and this is the third heading, the question comes, why is Jesus' death effective? Why is Jesus' sacrifice effective? What is so different? Well, have a look, chapter 9, verse 15. Halfway through chapter 9, verse 15, we read, Jesus has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. He's died as a ransom. What is a ransom? A ransom is what you pay to somebody to free something. In this case, Jesus has paid the ransom to free us from the consequences of our sin, the consequences and the guilt, in fact, of our sins. He's paid the price. Well, what price is that? Well, from the very beginning of the Bible right through to the end, we're told by the one true living God, as shocking as it is to our ears, that the price of sin, the wages that sin is owed, is death. From Genesis chapter 3 all the way through to the very end of the book of Revelation, the wages of sin, we know, is death. Jesus dies as the ransom, paying that particular price. Why is his death so significant? Well, have a look at chapter 9, verse 22. It says, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. This reflects the truth that the wages of sin is death. If what sin deserves is blood, then the way that you atone for sin 
is through death, through a payment of life. Now, the background to sort of all of this comes back in the book of Leviticus. I don't know how familiar you are with the book of Leviticus. Years ago, uh, at the EU public meeting, you know, this year, our book of the year is Hebrews, which means half of all the public meetings are looking, working through the book of Hebrews. Years ago, uh, the EU came to me and said, oh, look, we're trying to think about what book of the year we should do next year. What should we do? Should we do John's Gospel? Or should we do 1 Corinthians? Or maybe Acts or Romans? Or maybe even Exodus? And I said, oh, I've got this crazy idea. Maybe we should do Leviticus. And there was sort of just silence for a little while. <laughs> and then I think it's a great testimony to the, the wonderful partnership we had as students and staff working together in the EU. They said, okay... Half of all the public meetings next year will be on the book of Leviticus. Now, if you'd heard that and you know anything about the book of Leviticus, you might be going, I don't know how that's going to go. But anyway, it was, I thought it was fantastic. But then I was giving the talk, so maybe I just had a good time. One of the things about the book of Leviticus, you might not realise, is it's like a big sandwich. The book of Leviticus is like a big sandwich. That is, the very beginning of the book matches the very end of the book. And then the next little bit at the start matches the next little bit at the end, and it works all the way in as this matching sandwich until you get to the very middle. And what, what's in the middle? Leviticus chapter 16 and chapter 17. They're at the very middle. What, what is chapter 16 about? It's about the Day of Atonement, which is the day that the high priest gets to walk into the most holy place. The center of the book of Leviticus is about this very day that the writer's talking about, the Day of Atonement, where the high priest goes in. And in particular, you read Leviticus 16, and you'll see, here's the sacrifices that the high priest has to offer for his own sins and his family, and for them, for the sins of the people. Here's the process he needs to go. It sprinkles blood everywhere, over himself, over the people, over all the stuff to cleanse it from the sins of the people, even over all the sort of the, the, um, the material things that are there. He sprinkles blood over everything. It's all been infected, so to speak, ceremonially unclean because we're more sinful than we like to remember. So he sprinkles this everywhere and when he comes out having offered all those sacrifices and made atonement for the sins of the people, he then takes off his priestly garment and he washes in water. Remember that, we'll come back to that in a moment. Okay? That's chapter 16. And you say, well, that's a lot of blood. And it was, it was a lot of blood. What's all that about? All the blood. Well, that's why you've got to read chapter 17. Of Leviticus. In chapter 17, there's this thing that strikes us as weird where the one true living God gives his command to his Old Testament people, says, Don't eat meat with the blood in it. Don't eat meat that's still got blood in it. You have to drain out all the blood first before you eat meat. You're going, okay, what's that about? Well, he actually explains it in Leviticus 17. He says, Because I've given you the blood of the animal. Because the life of the animal, the life of any of us, is in the blood. That sort of makes sense. And I've given you the blood not to eat, not to be part of your meal. I've given you the blood for making atonement for your life. Instead of us paying the wages of death for sin, the animal does. And so that's the explanation of all of the blood. These animals were paying the price instead of us. But what does Hebrews tell us? Those things, the blood of goats and bulls, can't actually cleanse your conscience. They were a matter of external cleansing. A reminder, we read there, of the reality 
that we have sinned. And a reminder of just that we needed a real cleansing, which comes in when Jesus gives his life as a ransom, paying the price for our sin. Well then, come to my fourth heading. How effective is it? How effective is it? Jesus' death. Have a look. Chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. Chapter 10, 11 and 12, as we come towards the end. Day after day, the, the priest stands and performs his religious duties. Notice, what was it? What, what um, status? What's the priest doing there? Performing his religious duties whilst standing. He stands day after day, performing his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. The writer's saying, why do you want to go back to that old system? Like, it can't actually give you the cleansing you're looking for. Verse 12, but when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And he said, why do you sit down? Because you've finished. Jesus sat down because he'd he done the task. Whereas the priest, still back in Jerusalem, when the writer's writing this, they're still offering their sacrifices every day, which can never cleanse sins. Why do you want to go to the back? Jesus did it once for all with his own life and sat down. It's over. It's done. No more to do. How good is it? Well, then look at the consequence. Verse 14 there. Because by one sacrifice... Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being sanctified. Let that verse sink in. By one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being sanctified, those who are being sprinkled. Uh, Sydney Uni has, I, I've got no evidence for this apart from anecdote and just being here a long time, Sydney Uni has, I think, a ridiculous number of perfectionists enrolled as students and possibly as academics on staff. Uh, just, I don't know why Sydney gets so many perfectionists, but there are a lot of perfectionists. And if you're a little perfectionist at this point, just give yourself a little internal wave. Yes, I'm a little perfectionist. I, you don't have to admit it to others, right? I'm a little perfectionist. Alright. You, if you're a perfectionist or you're a friend with a perfectionist, and who's not a friend with a perfectionist in Sydney, you understand the great burden that perfectionism is. You can never live up to your own standards. And you might manage to control the universe for this little section and just really do really well on this one little thing and you can feel good about that, but you've sort of got to... Because you know the rest of it's not. Not living up to what you want it to be, right? Perfectionism is an impossible burden. Notice what this verse tells you from God. By one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect... Forever, those who are being sanctified, those who come to him in faith. You may never live up to your stance of perfectionism in this world, but let me tell you, because of what Jesus has done, he has made you perfect forever with God. You, have, you can stop trying to impress him. You can stop trying to win his approval. Jesus has made you perfect forever. Therefore, what's the conclusion? The last one. So what? Chapter 10, verses 19 to 22. 
Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Who draws near to God? Well, the high priest got to draw near to God, go to the Holy of Holies. Jesus is our high priest. He goes into the... Who in this verse draws near to God? We do. You get to share in the very thing that only the high priest got to do once a year. You do it every day. You get to draw near to the one true living God because your conscience has been sprinkled clean. Because your body, like the high priest, has been washed with pure water. So you can draw near to him with a sincere heart in full assurance of trust, of faith. Because you've been cleansed by him for all eternity. I discovered as I was reading my Macbeth, chapter 5, I, didn't, I did, had no recollection of this line that comes later in that scene. The doctor says, as he looks at Lady Macbeth, he says, more needs she the divine than the physician. God, God, forgive us all. Shakespeare understood that the real cleansing of conscience actually only comes from God. Psychologists may help you deal with stuff that's happened. Doctors may help you. Like, lots of people who can help. Friends will help you. Brothers and sisters in Christ can help you. But real cleansing of your conscience only comes from God. Shakespeare got that. King David got it in his own sin. As he says, have mercy on me, O God. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. The cleansing that you need, the cleansing for your soul, for your conscience, is found in the death of Jesus. He's made you perfect forever as those who've come to him. Thanks, Robin. Just before we um, head out after the tea, just be out there, I'm just going to pray. So just going to pray with me. Lord, we can't ignore our own guilt. We need real cleansing of our conscience and of our sin. Jesus has died as a ransom to set us free from our sins. Jesus has offered for all time a sacrifice for our sins. By one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Help us to draw near to you in a sincere heart with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure heart, with pure water. Amen.